1: buddy and welcome back to another episode of East Screen West Screen. This is episode 56 for Tuesday, February 22nd, 2011. As always, I am Paul Fox and joining me is my regular friend, guest and co-host from somewhere in the fragrant harbor, Mr.
2: Kevin Ma. Hi everybody. How's it going, Kev? Uh pretty good. I'm right now I'm looking at my new uh fresh iPhone. Ah. Yes, I have sold my soul to Steve Jobs. You've converted. But yes, now you've sir. already got
1: the iPad. Why get an iPhone?
2: Yeah, well, uh, uh, mainly it's um, to use for video calls between families, you know, families overseas. Um, and it just is a lot easier. Plus, they could see me, um, which could be a bad thing. if They could see how messy this place is. But anyway, yeah, it's mainly for video calls um, because my old phone, anyway, I was been using that for two years. And it was time I switched providers, and it was a good time. Mm.
1: Well, I mean you know what they say. You've got a month or so and
2: you're gonna have an iPad that can do all that. <laughs> well it's okay. I mean I'm not gonna carry my iPad everywhere, you know, it just it's too big and it's not portable enough. The iPhone was really nice. Um I don't know about it as a phone right now, but it's um it's a good multimedia multi use device right now. But um anyway, let's Let's talk about movies, which we actually, iPhone and movies, we'll be talking about this later on. But yeah, let's talk about movies right now. Yeah, because we
1: are here to talk about movies. We talk about movies from Hong Kong to Hollywood and other stuff in between. And speaking of other stuff, we're going to have a special guest joining us uh, today a man who some might consider a founder in this experiment that we call podcasting. Um, maybe a grandfather because he's been doing it for such a long time, although I don't know. If he's quite that old, that uh, that label would stick to him. Um, but you may have heard his name uh, in the interwebs, and that is Mr. Scott
0: Johnson. Welcome, sir. Hey. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm yeah. I'm excited to be here. I'm trying to let that grandfather term sink in a little bit, figure out what that means. Yeah. I'm not old enough to be an actual grandfather by any means, but, uh, well, I suppose I could be if my kids were a little more lascivious, but no, they're... They're still fine. Yeah. I don't. I don't suspect. I suspect I'm still a good ten to fifteen years away from any of that garbage. Mm. That'll be good. <laughs> so We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, thanks for having me. I'm. I'm really happy to be on. Well, it's. It's great to have you here
1: and have a chance to talk with you. And really, I'm looking forward to picking your brain um, on a lot of different subjects. And I guess we'll first start off by you know talking a little bit about podcasting because we may have some listeners out there who you know are based over here in Asia or based in Europe, who may not have heard about you, although I doubt it if they're of uh, having any interest in podcasting whatsoever. Um, mm. But your start in podcasting goes back a number of years now. Um, you were kind of podcasting long before people were podcasting. And uh, if, if my memory serves me correctly, you started out with ELR. That was kind of your first show. Um, and that was really uh, an extension plus, yeah. of your cartooning, right?
0: Yeah, it's um, <clears throat> it actually goes just a little bit further back than that um, in, well, I mean, technically I was dorking around as a kid with recording stuff and sharing tapes with friends and, you know, podcasting before the distribution method existed, but, um, you know, I, I guess we were sort of sharing files <laughs> in, in a weird way, but um, really the whole thing kind of started in 1999 when I was working... On a, um, I was doing some just freelance work for a, a video game mod for a game or for a modification for Unreal Tournament back then, which was kind of just hitting the scene and being really big. And it was called Infiltration. And it, uh, people asked me to describe that mod. If you, could, if you could go back that far in time and imagine what uh, a precursor to like the modern warfare games was like, that's kind of what these guys were trying to do. Hmm. Um, you know, modern tactics and all this. And I was really into it and they had they had the first time I'd ever seen iron sight speaking of first like looking down the barrel of a gun kind of mm. thing and it was pretty cool so i just thought well what can i do in this community to sort of support it i'm not a programmer i don't make games but you know what can i volunteer to do and it started first with some you know re, i did a, video, a a website that reviewed maps for the for the mod and then i you know moved up to doing some stuff on forums and some other things and anyway i had this idea well why don't i wouldn't it be fun mp3s are kind of the thing to talk about now I know how to make them. So wouldn't it be kind of fun to make, you know, some kind of show uh, that supported the show? And it would have interviews with the developers and would have, you know, feedback and all this stuff. I had all these ideas in my head. And at the time, I was just coming off of about six years of doing a regular radio show at an AM station locally, uh, a computer help show. That uh, just, you know, so the bug for radio was always in my head. And I thought, well, let's just try something here. So we just did these, you know, little half hour... Uh, things I say we I mean me main, mainly um, and we would shoutcast it live but then we would also put it up you know for for download and this is long before RSS or any kind of aggregation or ways of you know easily getting stuff to people and certainly it was well before um you know iPods had hit the scene not well before a few years before that would happen and so a lot of that stuff just you know it was just kind of an mp3 on a website and you would hear it on your web page and that that's how you consumed it and Uh, As you might imagine, it wasn't a huge deal and didn't spread far and wide or anything, but it was okay and we did all right with it. Um, It was in 2001, while I was still doing that show, that I launched the comic, the Extra Life comic, and was working on that pretty heavily and decided in 2002, I want to say, to branch out and do another show. This one called Extra Life Radio that would just kind of support the site and the fans and foster community and all of that. So I just kind of translate what I'd learned there and move it over to that. And for a long time, it was kind of a one-man show. And that show kind of didn't, in fact, I think it went about a year. And then I kind of put it on hold because, again, there was no great way of getting this to people. It was just sort of, well, if you know about it, then you come to the site. You can click on the file and listen to it or download it and, you know, play it in Windows Media Player or something. And it just wasn't awesome. But that's kind of how it worked back then. In 04, you suddenly hear about this podcasting thing. And I went, oh, this is it. This is the thing. This is the stuff I've been waiting for. So I jumped on it um, quickly and crazily. And I just had to do it. And let's see, I guess it would have been uh, late 04, early 05. I started Extra Life Radio again. But again, with RSS and all these new things that were happening. uh, This is even before iTunes supported podcasting natively and all that. But that's when it really started taking off for me, and the rest is, they say, is sort of history. But, um, and yeah, I mean, I mean, I've had this bug for a long time. At the same time, um,
1: or around the same time, you started experimenting with other kinds of streaming, if I if I remember correctly. Like, you, d- you did have, you started out with uh, Diary of a Cartoonist, which was just kind of like a, it was you cartooning at first, Mm -hmm. if i remember and um sometimes it was a lot of times it was just like uh sped up sketches and you were one of the first people to really do that and putting them on youtube and then later later it it, kind of changed into more of a personal diary but then other if i i I remember it seems I, i recall before you changed over the site um or maybe this was on I'm thinking of Ustream or, or one of the other streaming sites you used to use. You used to have saved clips of like you cartooning and I think um, maybe uh one of your co-hosts, Brian Dunaway, um you'd both be commenting as you were drawing.
0: Oh yeah, we um that's funny that you remember all that. So, yeah, back back then, um I mean, we're talking early days of YouTube, like long before Google bought them. Um I, I had done what I I think, I'm not 100% sure about this, and someone could probably pro- prove me wrong, but I think I was the first speed drawing submission to ever hit YouTube, um, and I ended up getting featured, and it got like, I don't know, 500,000 views or something crazy back then, and I remember thinking, whoa, that's cool. Now, it's like, if you go to YouTube, there's f- millions, literally millions of speed drawing videos, and you know, I'm certainly not cocky about that or need any credit for that, but it was, it was weird. Cause I had no idea what I was, you know, I just thought it was kind of cool looking the way you could speed it up. And it kind of made it more palatable because normally watching somebody draw for the typical hour it takes to do something is kind of long and boring. But if you speed that thing up and it ends up being about a 10 minute, you know, thing, there's something about that. That's a lot more consumable and people really responded to it. And then before you knew it, everybody was sort of doing it. Um, this doesn't feel like that long ago, but man, things have changed since then. That's so weird. But anyway, yeah, this uh, the Diary of a Cartoonist thing did start as that, and there was a lot of these sort of speed drawings and me doing different techniques and just showing how I did the comic and stuff like that. And Brian Dunaway did sit in on a few of those, and he and I would hang out, and that's how he and I he and I first kind of hooked up. He was he was a fan of the comic first and foremost, and had contacted me here and there, and we started up a sort of a conversation, and that turned into well, what will surely be a lifelong friendship, but, um, uh, you know, Brian and I are pretty tight now and, and we, you know, we communicate on a lot of levels, both with podcasting and he's, you know, he hosts or he's co-host on a couple of the shows I produce as well as, uh, he was one third of the ELR team before that retired. And, you know, Brian's a, Brian's a big part of things, but, but yeah, I mean, some of the streaming stuff we did, we did you, the, you did the stick cam thing back in the day when that first launched, they were really kind of pioneers in that um unfortunately there's they're kind of the worst choice now but <laughs> it's kind of how it works sometimes sometimes you're first but then you're worst later yeah. but um they they you know provided a way for me to do this and i and i have it on a good authority and i'm always teasing leo laporte about this but i was streaming shows before he was it's <laughs> <is> kind of <laughs> nice um and technically elr predated uh you know this week in tech so i always i'm always giving those guys crap for <laughs> you know that kind of thing and and stuff. And it's a lot of friendly sort of jabbing, but um, but yeah, we you know that stuff started
1: pretty early for me. I think that grandfather title is raising its ugly head once again. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, I'm just kidding. Um, but okay, so com- bringing everything up to the current date. Um, you moved on to start doing other shows, and and now currently you've sort of established your own online studio. You call it Frog Pants Studios, mm-hmm. and under that you produce. Uh, you know, uh, more more shows than I think you can count on, um, you know, a person's hand, and you've got shows that you yourself host and then shows that you've brought in from friends and fellow podcasters that you've met over the years um, to sort of come under um, this umbrella. And in doing that, you kind of made the transition from, you know, doing this sort of as a hobby on the side to actually quitting your regular job and taking a lot of what you do, including your cartooning work to the sort of professional level and doing this as a independent business. So, could you just talk a little bit about, you know, your thoughts on, uh, you know, podcasting and cartooning and and doing everything from home now? Is this something you see as, you know, a possibility for many people in the future?
0: Well, if you'd asked me, uh, the the comic strip, by the way, Extra Life is about to hit ten years old in in June. Um, if you would ask me ten years ago, if I thought any of that and this stuff would lead to me doing uh, essentially a childhood dream, which is you know a full time artist and broadcaster, which is all I ever wanted to be growing up. If I if you to if I, I always say this, if you go back to my eight year old self and just say you know self, what do you want to do? He would say, Well, I want to do. I want to draw and do radio stuff. Because that's all I did. I ran around with tape recorders all day. And I drew, and if I wasn't doing that, I was drawing all day. And those were just my passions. It's all I cared about as a kid. And as a kid, when you're said, when people say, Well, you're <clears throat> you have some talent for this, you could really go far. Well, what that meant was with cartooning, you had to get into syndication, which meant, you know, submitting thousands and thousands of submissions to syndications every year and getting thousands and thousands of rejections every year. And if you didn't know somebody or the timing wasn't just right. There was this tiny little gateway to get through, and the only way through was you know luck, basically. Um, it's because so many people were you know you, you you could only have so many Gary Larson's, Charles Schultz's and you know Bill Watterson's in the world. They just you couldn't you couldn't have some breakout new cartoonist every week, but that's what we all wanted, right? Well, same thing went with radio. If you wanted to get into broadcasting or radio or any of that kind of production stuff, you had to be. Uh, a A, you had to go, you know, had had to have very specific schooling. But s- secondly, the gateway there is very similar to the cartooning one. It's like, well, all right, there's a limited number of radio stations, and they all have limited numbers of formats, and you're only going to get in if you can get the right job at the right time, and then you get lucky if you get promoted to a place where you can actually DJ or do whatever the heck it is you want to do. Plus, I didn't even mention this about, about about the cartooning, but everyone owns you once you get into these two establishments. There's no, you know, there's no like. I control my own work. I'm my own editor in those worlds. It's you are beholden to everybody else's whims and if, and they own it, they own everything you do. And in, and in radio, you can't just determine your own format. You can't come in there and say, well, here's the idea I have. If you ever did do that, it's like a one in a billion chance that that ever could happen. I mean, Howard, there's only one Howard Stern for a billion other guys. And so, so, you know, both were just astronomically difficult to get into yet very desirable for me. Like I really wanted to do those things. Well, I had no idea that one day in my life there would be this method, this new mechanism that allowed me to do both of these things completely free of purview, of editorship, of other ownership, of anything. Complete control uh, would be mine. I had no idea that was coming. And I wish I could go back and tell my 10-year-old self to, you know, plan for that because it's coming and it's going to be awesome. But I couldn't. and so, anyway, the 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 short of it is, you know, if that's even possible at this point, uh, <laughs> jump ahead all those years and 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 the last ten years, I probably could have done this five six years ago, made this jump, and probably should have, but I was nervous. You know, I got three kids, a wife, house payment, you know, a couple of cars, trying to keep everything together, mm. and this idea that you can just. Leave your day job and and be a full time artist and podcaster seemed a little crazy if you'd have gone back five years and asked me that. I guess
1: it must have seemed kind of scary, but you've you've really kind of you know taken off. It seems like with with your the ideas that you've come up with for podcasts, it's like been right at the right time at the right moment. Um, so, for example, you you started a podcast called The Instance. Mm-hmm. Um, during the time when you know World of Warcraft was growing and expanding and and, and really taking off, um, but you started mm-hmm. App Slappy uh, right mm-hmm. when you know the App Store was coming up and and that was sort of taking off, and so your show took mm-hmm. off. Um, yeah. And then you started doing uh, the thing we'll talk about next, which is Film Sack, which is your mm. sort of a, a podcast about streaming uh, yeah. from Netflix. Now this is interesting because. And again, my memory is terrible, but I'm thinking back to, I guess it was an E3 or one of the, one of the gaming expos, uh, from a couple years ago. And I was watching, um, through streaming, it, streaming it online somewhere. And I was watching the, I think it was the Xbox demonstration. Mm. And I remember them showing something where it was like, you would, you take your little Xbox avatar guy and mm-hmm. you'd go into this room that kind of looked like a cinema and your guy would sit down in, in front of the screen, sort of like uh, Mystery Science Theater style. And your yeah. friends could go in that room too, you know, with their little avatar. And then everybody could watch the movie together. And I, I, I'm still, because I can't really remember, I'm wondering if I dreamed that or if I actually actually saw that now. Because uh, it was. No, it,
0: it, it did happen. Um, there was, I remember this, there was this big push that. Yeah, you'll be able to watch streaming movies with your friends, and you'll be able to talk to each other over the headset in real time. Yeah, you'd
1: be able to comment and yeah. stuff. And so that kind of
0: fizzled out, and they didn't really do it, but, you know, I yeah, Yeah,
1: I never, I never saw anything come of it. But then you guys kind of took that with Film and you applied uh, the Netflix streaming concept to it. And it's basically kind of the same thing. <coughs> Excuse me.
0: Um, yeah in a, in a very real way, it is I mean the way the, 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 the way Film Sack came about and, and, and all the shows really came about are honestly, it just boils down to an instinct. If you just I, I'll just look at where what something's you know where, where something either is either missing or something I would like to hear. like the instance just came from, man, there's not any good wow podcasts out there, and I play the game, and I would love to have a good one. Let me listen to these six that are available. Mm, they all kind of stink. I don't like any of them. Well, I'll just make my own then that's kind of the approach. <laughs> mm. Like app slappy, same thing. There were just it was crap for app, you know, coverage out there. It just wasn't very good. And, and, and when I say very good, I mean, just not very entertaining or very high quality or any of that. And so I said, well, I'll just, I have a buddy, Eric, he and I are really into apps. We talk about them every day. Let's we'll just do a show. And then we don't have to talk about them every day. We'll have a show to talk about them on. And, and that's kind of where those things come from. Then, you know, boom, they end up getting a bunch of traction and stuff like that. And film film sex not that different except that it isn't that there was a specific need, but what I was really into is like, okay, well, we have this new delivery method for film. And specifically with Netflix, but it doesn't even have to be them per se. It just happens to be that they're the ones, you know, breaking the ground and doing it. Um and I and there's nothing more fun for me. I used to friend uh, had a friend named Andrew in high school and in our 20s. Where and I don't see him as often as I used to, but he and I would just love to get together on weekends, rent some terrible science fiction movie, and then just sit there and laugh and talk and laugh. Well, like we're barely watching the movie. We're more having fun with what the movie's doing saying and 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 stuff like that. It's very mystery science theater, but a little bit more loose. like mystery science theater as much as I love it, and I think it's incredible. Um, but it's it's also a it's a it's a more stilted approach. And part of that is on purpose. You kind of can't have a show on TV where it's a lot of visual and stuff, and you can't constantly be talking or doing it improv style. You kind of have to structure it, and I get that. Um, But I I don't like that in a more fluid medium like podcasting. So my goal was to say, no, what I want to do here is for regular episodes where we just cover the movie – that's one thing where we're just covering it and we're talking after the fact, but then we'll also do these, what we call bonus sacks, which is commentary tracks for the whole two hours of the film and where we sit and talk about it and you can watch along while we talk. And I love both cases, but in the case of the, of the bonus sacks, those are, those are us just from the gut, no holds barred, no planning, just reactions to what we're seeing. And what we're seeing is, you know, bad eighties action thrillers and bad, science fiction and straight to video goofiness and things that you know people don't necessarily find on netflix on purpose and then a lot of it's stuff we know as, as kids and we see how things hold up we recently did the lost boys that was a whole lot of fun um and we and we and we not so much just tear things apart but we just sort of bask in the glow that is this modern ironic look at you know our childhood our sensibilities about what's entertaining and just and just laugh and have fun. Like that is a zone where I just am in some sort of weird entertainment bliss when we do those shows. And as it turns out, again, it's a show for me, really. But as it turns out, that's very appealing to a bunch of other people. And that show really took off as a result. I think that's, I think the reason is, is because we are genuinely having the time of our life in there. That is a blast.
1: Yeah. It, I think that definitely comes through. And for listeners, um, if you haven't, as yet encountered the film sack, I would urge you to do so. And a good place to get started, especially for those of you who are partial to the East Screen portion of our program, you can check out one of the recent bonus sacks where they did uh, Rumble in the Bronx with our friend yeah. uh, Jackie Chan, and it's a great, great episode. I was, I, I think, I was laughing more than I was actually watching the movie as I, <laughs> as I watched along and,
0: and listening. Well, what, to the what's commentary. cool about those is we we recommend people watch the movie right along with us if they can, but I kind of don't. I listen to those same episodes later, just to get a kick out of it because they're funny, and I don't remember half the stuff we said. And Brian Dunway always makes me lose it. He'll always say something that just puts me into stitches. And there's things I miss while we record that I didn't quite hear because I'm focused on the movie or whatever. So I'll go back and listen to those. Just Sans movie, just just the commentary. Those can be, those can completely be consumed that way, uh, if people so desire. But. It, it it honestly if we had 10 listeners to that show we wouldn't care cuz we're having so much fun with it as it happens it's it's been a great success and it's our second biggest draw right now on the network and um i'm just I, I couldn't be happier with it we're having so much fun
1: well let's talk a little bit about consuming um things like films and and cinema and um some people may already know this about you uh, if they follow some of the stuff that you've done and some of the things you've talked about um, but you're pretty much a, a very what they would call a very early adopter of uh, new technology, and you have kind of made the transition to get away from television altogether. Um, mm-hmm. you, you've mentioned that you basically use Netflix, um, you know, and Apple TV, and you watch a lot of content on an iPad now. Um, wh- what do you think about? you know, uh, making that transition. Um, do you think that that's going to be the, you know, the, the thing of the future that traditional TV and TV stations are kind of be a thing of the past, an
0: archaic relic? Well, I think what'll happen, see, here's the thing that nobody considers and that is that companies like Comcast and and Time Warner and, um, oh geez, just traditional, you know, the satellite, these guys have bandwidth and delivery mechanisms that are incredibly valuable the problem is not the method that we're receiving them like my my big push isn't oh I want it all with the internet that's where I want all my stuff is just the internet that's the only service provider I want that's actually not true I would like to be able to say yeah the internet's great but how about less of my bandwidth goes toward downloading movies or watching movies on streaming and goes more toward other stuff I want to do with it. And then that movie and entertainment stuff happens in a more real-time, less buffered way with established bandwidth. And the problem is that the people that hold the keys to that, to to those doors aren't allowing that to happen. In other words, Comcast is ridiculously slow at, accept, first of all, accepting the fact that this shift is happening, and B, responding to it in a way that will establish them as king of the hill for, forever. And the way they do this is, they stop doing the traditional method of, well, here's 50 channels for our lowest entry thing, and then here's 150, uh, by the way, uh, 149 of which you don't care about, and then here's our 300-channel option. Quit doing that. Like, quit, quit doing these big packages full of literally you know, 95% of channels you don't care about, but you're paying for anyway, just to get the five you do care about, and start offering them individually start offering them as smaller package deals and say, well, all right, well, I want the science package. And that includes discovery channel, you know, um, um, I'm trying to think of some others, uh, animal planet, whatever, uh, some, some grouping of similar stuff, or be able to go in and just say, I want discovery. I want, um, uh, FX and I would really like to have AMC please. And then also TNT and thank you. We're done. And give us, give us an all la carte solution that, that is still traditionally, you know, going to come through all these cable boxes, come through all your homes in the same way, come through the satellite boxes, whatever. And let us have that television experience in the same way that we're starting to get it through Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Video On Demand, so on Apple, everybody. Give us that experience, but with those traditional delivery methods, and you will have me back as a customer tomorrow. It, the, the problem is I am not like right now, the way I do TV is I, I did, I cut off, I cut off cable and satellite completely. So I save about $900 a year that I was paying otherwise. And I'm not missing a thing because everything I ever cared about or wanted to, wanted to get, I can get, uh, on demand the way uh, like Apple TV and Roku and others do it at Amazon. And I get them through Roku's Apple's Apple TVs. I have a Mac mini on a TV um, all these various methods. I have Hulu Plus on everything. And so for what little I pay for, for Netflix streaming, Hulu Plus, Amazon Prime, and other stuff, I'm still saving seven, seven to $800 a year on, on that kind of stuff. And I'm still getting to see everything I wanted to get uh, from traditional television, plus this treasure trove of some might call it weird and crappy, but this stuff, this rare stuff, this weird stuff, the stuff that you never would think to even look at on on things like Netflix or Hulu. And I'm getting all of that for a fraction of the cost. I'm getting it on big blown up TVs and I'm getting it when I want it, how I want it. And I can pause, rewind. I can, you know, I can decide how I want to consume the thing. So what do I miss out on? I miss out on live sports. Well, guess what? For that, I'll put up an HDTV antenna and bam, I'm getting all the live sports I could care about. Um Am I getting, you know, the NFL ticket? No, but I'm getting, you know, Super Bowl and World Series and playoffs and and stuff like that. So so they have not given me a single reason to go back to them for the way that we consume TV. My wife's been happier with it. The kids love it. Um, and I just, I don't, they're not giving me a reason to go back to it. And yeah, I'm an early adopter of this stuff. And it's been like three years since I did this. Um And a lot has changed in three years And there's a lot, you know, there's a lot more and better ways to sort of uh, uh, consume this stuff now over the Internet. But really, all I really want is for one of them to just stop and go, oh, my gosh, we have a huge opportunity here. And if we don't do it, someone's going to do it and pass us up. So let's be the guys that do it and just give us a better way. That's all. Mm -hmm. It's all they have to do. Let's say a big provider like Comcast or somebody who is doing, you know, big distribution. Let's say DirecTV, for for example. If they let me go to their website or even call them and say, all right, well, what do you got? And they have all these channels listed out. And they have, I keep bringing up Discovery because that's one I'd buy. So Discovery Channel, five bucks. Five bucks a month. Um, and also ESPN, five bucks a month. And let's say Cartoon Network, five bucks a month. I would say, sign me up. Fifteen bucks, let's go now even that compared to what you can get on Netflix stuff if you're willing to wait for Netflix stuff to get things is not that good of a deal like i can consume a whole lot more entertainment on on Netflix right now for my p- piddly amount of month than i can get for $15 for 3 channels but the point is that i get i just need more choice like i ju- cuz i don't care about all the other stuff i'm paying for I just don't care about all that other stuff. Local channels, fine, whatever. That's I can get that over the air. But but like, you know, I just don't care about Telemundo and freaking QVC and hundreds of other wa- just a waste of time channels that mm-hmm. I have no desire to be on or, or be in. And I remember when the big impetus came for me to make this change, I remember my wife and I were sitting down watching something and skipping through commercials on TiVo, you know. The other thing is we just, you know, what's the commercials have become kind of just, I don't know, they got to figure out a new way to advertise to me because I'm just jaded. But I'm, I'm sitting there going, all right, I have 300 channels, but I don't feel like I have anything to watch.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's weird, right? Like, that's a weird feeling to think that you have that much stuff. It's like showing up to a banquet and finding out all the food is made of plastic. It's just like, well, you know, why am I at the banquet then? Yeah. Like, why did I pay for this? And Instead, and that's I mean, that's when we made that choice. And then suddenly I felt like, oh man, for my nine bucks 10 bucks a month from Netflix, look what we can choose from. It's this huge thing with just endless possibilities. And you know suddenly something will show up that's brand new and we'll get all excited and then something will show up that's you know 25 years old and I haven't seen since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And we get equally excited about that and it's just nonstop getting you know choices. And I don't feel that feeling of uh, I've got a million channels and nothing to watch. There's always something to see, and any of the TV we're into, we have options for. If it's not on Hulu, it's on the site of the thing that's doing it. If it's if it's not there, it's available through iTunes the next day. And paying you know a buck ninety nine for an episode is no big deal because in the larger larger scheme of things, even if I buy a few entire seasons that way on on. On Apple TV, I, like, that's how we're watching Justified, which is a show we are really, really into. Hmm. Um, an FX show. It's the only place I can get it. And, but, so, okay, there goes, what is it, 20 bucks, I think, for that season on standard dev, till the end of the year, or till the end of the season. Big deal. That's less than a, you know, that's like a third of what my old cable bill used to be a month. Yeah. So, so to me, it's just, you if you can recreate that experience if traditional media can figure out a way to keep make that feel like that, they'll have something, and they'll then and, and the shift will go back to them. It really will. Mm. I, I'm, I'm a huge believer in that, but I don't see them doing it. They're scared of. They hate this. They freaking hate it. Yeah, I, I get this.
1: I get the same the same feeling. And yeah. just a side comment for somebody who's jaded on commercials, you sure do play a lot of them in the morning stream. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, <clears throat> and that's the thing. Like I know, I'm it's the, it's, on, it's the old
1: nostalgia stuff. I, I yeah, I, it's I get
0: nostalgia. It. It's ironic. It's it's weird that we used to have ads that said certain things. You know, I just I, mean, that, I just in imagine. A, in a way, a, I'm kind of jabbing at it that way. I guess. You know,
1: if, if they have, I'm sure I'm sure it'll be you know something much cooler now in terms of the technology. Technology, but I, I can imagine thirty years from now, you know the 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 next Scott Johnson. He's doing the virtual podcast <laughs> or whatever, and he's going to be playing commercials for like you know. Eccentra or you know a lot of, a lot of those uh, you know the, the drugs and stuff they try and sell people and they say oh you know <laughs> side effects may include migraine nostril <laughs> bleeding and you know uh, itchy toes
0: totally those <laughs> are the weird commercials of the future I'm sure of it yeah. I'm, um, I'm totally sure but that's funny I we, we, I love the retro ads like that's one of my favorite things of TMS I, I the, we only do it twice an episode but man I love that yeah, stuff it's good fun stuff.
1: Hi, everybody. I just wanted to take a moment to jump in and say that because of the length of the interview that I ended up doing with Scott, I've decided to break it into two parts. The interview actually went on a bit longer than I had anticipated, but because we started talking about some really interesting things, I decided I wouldn't edit it down as much as I had planned to. Um, So I'll break it into two parts, and in the next segment, what you'll be able to hear is Scott sharing some of his ideas about things like 3D versus on-demand, physical libraries versus cloud libraries and some of his predictions for the coming comic book films that are due to be released in 2011. So you can look forward to that in our next episode episode 57
2: Alright what's the news this week Kevin? Well a uh, couple of news. Uh, this one we don't have a link for it but I was looking at the Apple Daily website. Uh, some of the news items coming in and uh The first one uh, says that Jet Li, uh, the star, the action star who actually said he officially retired from martial arts film with Fearless, says he's looking to produce and act in a film about Tai Chi. Um, uh, Do you know anything about the art of Tai Chi, Paul? You want to introduce it to our audience? I don't Um, really know much about uh,
1: martial arts. Go out to any park here in Hong Kong in the early morning and you'll see a bunch of senior citizens doing it.
2: Yeah, essentially it's uh, kind of a martial arts um, that when slowed down, it can be done recreationally, I guess. It's uh, nice. apparently very good for the body. body. Uh, it's a form of martial arts, and I think Jet Li is looking to make a film about it. And uh, even though he already has uh, Yi Brothers uh, on his side, uh, Huayi Brothers are a really, really big film uh, production company in China. The word is that he's courting... Uh, the bosses are tycoons of multiple companies trying to get them to become investors uh, and, and uh, by trading uh, cameos, as in he would let these tycoons uh, be in the film, uh, I guess, in exchange for funding. Uh, what do you think, Paul? I mean, didn't I mean, Jet Li retire from martial arts? Films? Hasn't he already
1: done the Tai Chi Master movie once?
2: Yeah, I think that could be why he feels a special connection to it. Um, I guess because he's done the film and he, he's, I guess, familiar with the art. But uh, I guess this will be one of the first times he's involved in filmmaking as a producer mm. and as a star. Um, I guess it's always good, Jet Li, to in action movies. But um, the fact that he's courting, even though he has one of China's biggest film companies on his side, he's still courting these big... Um, conglomerates uh it sounds like a really big vanity project and i'm smelling a little michelle yo over here i don't know about you uh i don't know
1: you know it's as long as they don't have an a scene at the end where he gets in a ring with foreign people and they cheat and you know there's a but he still wins but he dies in the end uh as long as they don't do that uh, i'll be okay i'll see it
2: well, it's a Chinese-made martial arts movie about, you know, the spirit of Chinese martial arts. You know there will be a foreigner uh, as is a, an evil evil villain.
1: Can, can we move on from that trope, though? I mean, I, I think it's time, right?
2: Uh, the thing is, if you're in China, um, it was China, almost every other channel was showing a TV drama that involved... Uh, Chinese people fighting either communist, uh, fighting the nationalists, or fighting the Japanese. Uh, every other Chinese big blockbuster, you have an evil foreigner. It's, it's just the same thing as how Americans need to fight Nazis in every war movie. I I think you, you use that equivalent is e- a little easier to buy, but no, the way that the Chinese handle it is definitely not very uh, sensitive, so to speak.
1: Mm. All right, uh, you mentioned before
2: a little bit of iPhone news this week. Yes, um, director of uh, Old Boy Park Chan Wook, who is really famous for the Revenge trilogy of Korean Korean films, um, he recently did a film entirely using the iPhone four, uh, as a camera, It's a thirty minute short film, uh, made with his brother, uh, and it went to Berlin, and um, there it won the short film competition. Um, however, actually, it seems like that the the jury didn't give. The, the film the award um, for using the iPhone it's really for the storytelling and and the way he uses um, I think dark magic or there's some supernatural stuff in it um, we always know that Park Chan-wook is a very visual visually he's a very strong director and um, this is a very interesting visual experiment even though it cost I think in addition to the phone there was a lot of lighting, uh, different lenses, editing and things like that and the movie ended up costing the same amount of money a usual short film would but um, but anyway, it is it's it's very it's a very uh promising news that um the director is able to use new technology and not let the technology own him. Um it seems like again the storytelling, the the way what he uses, the way he shot the film, uh these strong directorial skills was what earned the film the award. Um but what do you think, Paul? Do you think the iPhone 4 could be the next uh filmmaking device? Well,
1: they, I you know,
2: they've already had
1: uh I think they've had a, a festival, some independent festivals where that's been the requirement. Um, but it's a recording device. I mean, it's like any other recording device. You can take, you know, you you've. you've I, there was a, there was a film festival, or it wasn't a festival. It was a, I think it was a commercial experiment or something where they got a bunch of famous directors, and they gave them some of the old Lumiere cameras, the, the, some of like the early film camera. Uh, it was a replica, I think. But they let some of the famous directors of the world use it to shoot like a minute or 30 seconds or something like that. Really, really, really short shorts, and they put them together. Um, so this is nothing really new. It's just kind of modern because it's got the iPhone attached to it.
2: Yeah, the thing is that uh, many of these young, aspiring directors, they use smaller gadgets like the new generation of DSLRs, the the, the the digital cameras to shoot films uh, because they're cheaper, they're easier, they're more mobile. But the fact that Park ended up using $100,000 to shoot this iPhone 4 film, I don't think it really bodes well for the iPhone 4 as a filmmaking device later on. It seems like more and more of a gimmick.
1: Well, I mean, by the same token, you've got people out there making, you know, these independent knockoff movies um like uh what was it star wars revelations and uh the star trek web series that's going on and they're doing it on shoestring i mean literally shoestring budgets and uh, granted they do get a lot of people donating time and things but you look at some of the things they do and some of the standards they have and i mean you know the acting's kind of cheesy because they're not getting professional actors but in terms of the effects and in terms of stuff where a lot of money is sunk into in terms of, you know, modern film. um, It really calls into question some of the budgets that go into things, you know, like an avatar or um, the next big superhero epic, right? Mm -hmm. I think that if you've got skills, you can take anything that's a recording device and do something interesting with it. Um, If you're just, you know, using an iPhone because it's an iPhone and it's like sort of the hot gadget that everybody's got, okay, you know, you'll probably get some brownie points in the community uh, for doing that. But I think, you know, directors at his level are already used to having these massive budgets, regardless of their if they're using a camera that's like, you know, less than the cost of uh, uh, a piece of film, right? Uh, a film reel that you'd put in a traditional camera. So, I don't know. I, it, it, from my perspective, it's a bit of a gimmick. Uh, final bit of news this week, Kev?
2: Uh, yes, the um, long-awaited, I guess, Hot uh, Summer Days. Um, I-, I don't know if they call it direct sequel. I think it's a direct sequel. I think it's more like um, another installment of the ensemble romance. Um, it's finally starting production. Um, it was meant to be, I think, done for Chinese New Year, but it didn't really happen on time. Um, did you like the first Hot Summer Days, Paul? You
1: know, it was okay, as anthology films go. Um, I think if I remember back we talked about it. Um some of the stories were hit and some were miss as is you know usual for these type of anthology stories. Um but is it is it called Hot
2: Summer Days 2 or is it called something else? No, it's uh apparently it's called Love in Space according to uh, Film Biz Asia. Um I'm not sure why they have this love in space thing, because uh, again, it will be another multi-city uh, love story, this time they're crossing the border out to Australia, but it seems like it's uh, more of the same um, The directors a back, Wayne Shia, the photographer and Tony Chan, uh, the writer uh, and the director of the first co-director of the first film um, and different stars uh, three of the stars from the first movie will be back, Angela Baby, uh, Jim Boran who is the young the young uh, love interest, Avenger Baby, in the film, and also Renee Liu. Uh, those three will be back as uh, the main cast members. Uh, joining the big cast this time will be Ethan Chan, uh, Aaron Kwok, and uh, Kweilin May, otherwise known in the love HK film community as Gooey. Um, so at least they got Heavenly King back, but. Um, it seems like uh, the cast is not strong this time. Uh, I'm not saying Ethan Chen and Aaron Kwok, they're not good. Um, I like them, and especially Gooey. That's that's great news for, for at least Kozo. Um, but it's not really getting me all that excited. The cast isn't getting me excited. Um, they do they did promise, however, there will be a lot of cameos uh, this time around again. Uh, just like the previous film, they had a, a pretty high-profile cameo by Maggie Chen. Um so we'll see. I hope. I hope that it will at least come out in the summer, which is kind of an appropriate time for a movie um, that was called "Hot Summer Days." Um, what do you think, Paul? You're looking forward to this installment?
1: Uh, I don't know. No. <laughs> I mean, if it was really taking place in space, like outer space, space, then I'd be really interested. But uh, you know, it's just another love anthology series that's taking place a little bit further out you know uh, beyond the borders of hong kong and parts of china oh, okay i mean well, i'll see it but not that excited
2: well i, I kind of like the first film i mean just based on the fact that it's kind of a a take on um as a take on i guess a hollywood type of hollywood romantic comedies and i think it was a good imitation um and just for being able to imitate it so well i i kind of i kind of have a soft spot for the film mm.
0: For listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast, visit congcast.com for more.
1: All right, let us move on and talk about East Screen. Uh, Normally, we'd have uh, a lot of films to talk about, but... This week, only one, but when we talk about that one, we're actually going to be talking about two, because that one is a remake of a Hollywood film. Now, just last week, uh, we had our guest Rufus on, and we were talking about, you know, what do you think about when Hollywood takes these movies like, you know, My Sassy Girl, or The Ring, or The Grudge, or other Asian films, and remakes them, and we all kind of grumbled, you know, in the way we do, because we know what Hollywood does. Well, here we have the opposite going on for a change. Um, And so what do we make of it when China takes a Hollywood movie and does a remake? Um, So Kevin, tell us about
2: What Women Want. Um, I know What Women Want, but uh, I'll wait for that until the end of the review. Um, What Women Want is the remake, official remake, may I add, uh, of the Mel Gibson, Helen Hunt romantic comedy. Uh, This one is... Uh, invested by a lot of Chinese companies, but the ones we know would be uh, Hong Kong's Emperor Pictures and Andy Lao's Focus Films. Um, I think Andy Lao is one of the producers, uh, so of course he is starring in the film. Um, the plot is essentially the same. Uh, I haven't seen the original for a long time, so we'll get into comparisons later, but I think the plot is essentially the same. Uh, again, Andy Wazai uh, is, is uh, playing uh main character who is an ad executive, kind of an arrogant. Uh, male chauvinist. Um, he works in an ad company, and um, one day he gets the ability to hear what women think, and hence what women want. So he is using the, this new power to um, defeat his new, I guess, office um, office enemy. I guess played by Gong Li, uh, Li Long. Um, and from that he begins to kind of learn About women and what women think And, and their mindset uh, He first of course uses it to, to Score to score, um, And he uses it to, to Get uh, advantage And he uses it to get the woman in the office to like him More and things like that But um, as all as all romantic comedy protagonists do, they not only learn how to respect women or what they didn't respect in beginning, they also fall in love. Um, not much surprise here. Um, it's a very glossy-looking film, uh, as, as all, I guess, commercial films do. China is very, very, um, I guess the Chinese film industry is very much into showing off its new metropolitan image, uh, cheek architecture, um, nice cars, um, things like that, the upper middle class, and a lot of it is on display here. So uh, no surprise. Um, Most of the film is a direct lift from the original, I think. Some scenes are similar, um, even some dialogue. uh, Many characters carry over here, including a a young teenage daughter, a young adult daughter for Andy Lau, which is kind of weird. The first time, I guess the oldest... Oldest Chow and any of characters ever have uh, in a film. Um, my problem with it is that it doesn't really do much with the material. It the, knowing that some of these stuff happened original, uh, it kind of makes the the new film kind of awkward to watch uh, how it carries over. It does have a few few new jokes, I guess, for Chinese audiences. Um, there's one that I remember about a Japanese restaurant that. Uh, Pretty much renovated itself, including this menu to fit, I guess, the new, the new sensibilities of the upper middle class people, and that was kind of interesting. Um, however, much of it is doesn't really do any new material, um, and the problem is, as I wrote in my Love HKA film review, is that the source material is so unremarkable that if you don't do, if you're not aiming to do much new the remake, if you just plan to lift the original to the remake, then you have an unremarkable remake. Uh, not much of a surprise. Uh so it's not really a memorable film. Uh the problem is that it's not even en- as entertaining or as funny as the original film because the original film uh has some surprises, I guess, uh for those who's never seen this uh new gimmick being done. But many Chinese people, especially its target audience of young women, I guess, um dates, dating uh dates, uh date couples, um not sure what date couple is, sorry uh, Couples uh, who go to watch these films They've probably seen the original film On the computers, on the, on TV, wherever Many of them have seen it And so when they go in They might expect something new And it doesn't really do anything new um, Also the, the problem with the film is that It's hard to find an Andy Lau vehicle That's miscast Because Andy Lau is a very versatile actor But I, I think he's very miscast here he, He's way too Andy Lau Um I'm guessing it's because he's the boss, so no one really kind of redirected him. Um, he, he He's not a lazy actor, but the problem is that he put too much of his star persona. He's trying too hard to be charming, and then it ends up looking too much like Andy Lau. Um, the pivotal scene where um, he, he puts on the woman's clothing and, and starts dancing around, it, it just looks like he's doing a, a, a routine from his concert. Um and the part where he goes up to the stage and sings to, to charm Gong Li, uh, he carries the mic like a pop star. It's all very Andy lau and it's hard to buy him as the male chauvinist. It's as hard to buy him as in the Mel Gibson's role. And I'm talking about pre-breakdown Mel Gibson, even... Um, he doesn't really play the role too well, and of course, this this really will spark a discussion about who is right to pay, play this role. Andy Lau is the right star caliber; he's at the right spot in his career to play this. He's at the right age, but if he's not right for the role, then who is? Um, we'll discuss a little more later. Uh, as for Gong Li, he, he she she clearly isn't is too good for the material, and the way that she owns the role, it's it almost like she didn't put effort in it, and she still manages to fit the role so well because she is the new, I guess, the new um, working woman of China. She is very much, she has the look, she has the metropolitan look. She has the gloss, the the makeup and everything. It looks. She looks very fit for the role, and and she makes it look so easy. You know, that is a testament to how good of an actress she is. Um, the, the film itself runs uh, 10 minutes shorter than the original film, um, but it really dragged. Uh, it might be because I watched, watched it in a not very good theater when i was in china uh the film was played at a wrong aspect ratio and uh it was running way too softly but it really dragged a lot of scenes just kind of went on and on um director da Ming chan he just sort of shoots the film in kind of like a tv drama style it doesn't really add anything new to the material a lot of it just pointing and shooting so the film drags a little bit. Um, but otherwise, you know, if you're an Andy Lau fan, uh, TV, it run, it'll it probably run better on TV anyway, whether you're an Andy Lau fan or not. It'll work fine on TV, something to play in the background or something that with commercials in the middle so that it won't drag so much. Um, it's very much like a make-for-TV movie with a feature film budget. Um, but otherwise, it uh, might not be worth seeing in the theater, even though it went... Day to date in the United States and Australia, um, I would wait for DVD or even wait for it to 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 be shown on TV or video on demand. Mm. Paul,
1: yeah, the film the film really does diverge from the original in a number of ways, and I had not seen the original before, so I rented it uh, the day before I was going to go see this because I wanted to have some of the you know the original context and. Wasn't really looking forward to watching the original, but I ended up kind of liking it in, you know, some ways. I'm not a huge Mel Gibson fan. Um, for me, the only Mel, good Mel Gibson movies either have Mad or Lethal in the title. <laughs> and beyond that, it, it's kind of a really hit, hit and miss for me. Um, But, in, you know, in the original, uh, if you've seen it, uh, you'll remember that the character played by Mel... Um, his background is very instrumental in the reason he is the way he is. And the reason he is that way is because he was raised by his mother, he did not have a father, and his mother was a Vegas showgirl. So she, he was raised in the changing rooms, the back changing rooms, you know, as a little boy, seeing all these Vegas women and naked bodies and things. And that, so that really sets up his attitude towards women uh, when he's older. And that's not here. Here, you've got Andy, who's raised by his father, who's sort of this revolutionary, uh, you know, party member, and he's a a choir singer, and he sings revolutionary songs. I wasn't really sure, you know, how that carried over to Andy. I mean, I know it was—he didn't really show concern or compassion for his wife— Uh, that much as opposed to his career as this you know revolutionary singer apparently Um, and so that's why you know andy becomes misogynistic i for me it didn't make the connection maybe there's a cultural gap there though i will admit that Um, but some segments do mirror the original exactly others try and uh, tread some new ground um but yeah like you said andy's character is just not believable in part because the sex is removed from this movie Mm-hmm. Yeah, this really sanitized. There's no sex in this movie, and the original is about Mel going around sleeping with people, as many girls as he can. I mean, mm-hmm. um, and there's one relationship that he has with a character in the original. Um, um, I can't remember the actress uh, who it was, but um, he has the, he has this 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 relationship with this coffee shop girl, and. You know, that starts out as sort of a one-night stand and develops into this almost kind of bordering on crazy, um stalkerish kind of relationship. And they try and pull that off here, but without the one-night stand encounter, it doesn't really work. Um, it just seems kind of out of place.
2: So, <coughs> excuse me. Yeah, it was pretty strange because the way that... The Andy Lau character here charms the woman is to not have sex with them.
1: Yeah, <laughs> in both both yeah. cases. Well, I mean that th- that was what they did in the original.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, he,
1: you know, in the original, he kind of says, you know, he he plays the nice guy. He pulls the nice guy card and says, "Oh, I want to go slow," and then that makes the girl like jump his bones. Um, so they they sort of stopped there, and then what came later didn't really the the scene that they did later is similar to the original film but it didn't really make as much sense because of a you know the sexual encounter that did not happen so the sanitization um was i think a mistake because again it makes andy look like um a nicer guy than the character should be mm-hmm. um you know the transformation scene uh they you know it, it's kind of the same it's kind of different there's there's actually an outtake at the end where it shows him Uh, doing the leg waxing that Mel does in the original. Um, But that wasn't actually in the movie. They cut that. And instead, they gave us some scenes of, like, Andy trying to smoke a tampon and um, putting a maxi pad on and, like, stuff that was never in the original that you're just kind of looking at going, what the heck, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, okay, I I guess they were trying to get some comic relief in there with ladies' products, um, a bit more so than the original. And the word of the day is anima. I didn't know if you knew that. I didn't know that. I didn't hear that in the original in the, you know the original it was just the the male the, the the team was mixed in the original, you know. And the male employees had the challenge of trying to get in touch with their feminine side to, to work with these products. Um here it was like all the team was men. It, it had a few funny moments. There was a really great crack against Edison Chen. I, I don't know if you remember catching that. Um where uh Andy was talking with the daughter when she brought home the boyfriend, and uh, he couldn't remember her name, her boyfriend's name, you know, because the, the daughter doesn't have a good relationship with, with the father, and she says, you know, you never listen to anything I say, and she's like, you know, what well, what's my boyfriend's name? And he's going through this list of names, and uh, he he lists up Edison Chen, and uh, <laughs> we, we had a good laugh. <laughs> um, and yet, back to the transformation sequence, you, you know, in the original, um, it's brought on by Excessive liquor um, and a, and slipping and falling in the tub and being electrocuted. Here, uh, you have, uh, I think it was contraception pills, slipping, falling, getting electrocuted in the tub. And there's a magic fish. <laughs> I, I'm still trying to figure out the fish. I don't no, I think
2: the magic fish was just the um, uh, hallucination uh, after being electrocuted. And the, the fish, I guess, is a hallucination. That's why, yeah, it makes... Yeah, I, I don't know. Um,
1: a couple of the roles they switched around. The, the landlady role. Um, the here, Andy has a landlady um, who was basically both the maid in the original and Bette Midler, uh, who had the cameo in the original as the psy- psychiatrist. So they got one lady to pick up both roles here. And But hey, Anya was here. Uh, I, I was looking in, in this one scene. There's a dinner date, and it's Anya. I haven't seen her in, like, forever. And here she is. And I don't even think she had, like one word of dialogue um and then along with her we got russell wong michael wong's somewhat famous american <laughs> actor brother i mean what more could you ask for we haven't seen him in hong kong since um um uh, musical singer i think with anita Moy. um and then the last thing i remember seeing him in was uh, one of the jet lee movies i think um uh, but yeah, uh, Russell Wong up there on the big screen with uh, Gong Li. Uh, but you know we were talking about Apple before. Both products feature, or both films featured Apple products uh, very prominently. So if you go back and watch the original, you'll see Mel Gibson and Helen Hunt, you know, working to the wee hours of the morning on the you know old uh, desktop and notebook apples that they had back in the day. And <laughs> you see Apple people working on apples here too. So uh, I guess Apple carries on as a sponsor. I don't know. Um, But for this film, there were some moments where it's really too self-referential. They make a joke about Andy looking like Andy. They make a joke about Gong Li or the character looking like Gong Li. Um, Not funny. And they didn't do that in the original. There was never a point when somebody came up and said, oh, hey, you look like Mel Gibson or hey, you look like Helen Hunt. You know, It it just kind of broke the wall a little bit too much for me. Um, and one of the things I thought that was really missing here was in the original, um, because of the background of the character, right? He, um, you know, growing up in Vegas, he had a a strong identification with Frank Frank Sinatra music, but then so did Helen Hunt, and he discovers this later on, that they, they both like listening to Frank Sinatra, and that, you know, the music is used to sort of bind the characters together, um and i kept thinking okay are they going to do that here is it going to be are they, are they going to be like old revolutionary songs or is it going to be andy lau songs or or what is it going to be and they never really went on that angle and i i think that, that that was something that probably needed to be included here um but just watching the film the overall look of the film really bad continuity in some places it just jumps around from like day to night to day and it's just like Things seem to, time seems to be missing in places. Poor cinematography. I was really expecting this film to look beautiful and it didn't. It looked bland. Um, you know, you were saying that this is, you know, another one of these films that's like focusing on the upper class and trying to highlight the city. Um, the skyline looked gray. Uh, a lot of the scenes kind of just looked gray and bland. Um, to compare it with a a, a, th- a film that I think had much better cinematography and looked a lot brighter and and co- more colorful as a city film, um, you could go back and look at Sophie's Revenge, mm-hmm. and that just stands out in just in terms of the look and the cinematography it stands out hands above uh, this film. So yeah, um, I'm 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 afraid I have to have to say you know if you're an Andy Lau fan, if you're a diehard Andy Lau fan like myself, uh, TV it. You know, uh, if you love Andy, because you're gonna want to see him in it. Um, if not, and especially if you've seen the original, I, I'm gonna say flee it. It's just not that good. Um, you, you'd probably be better spent. And I can't believe I'm saying this to go and watch the original. Um, I, I, yeah.
2: Uh, what What do you say, Kevin? No, I I think I I don't know if I go as far as flee it. I think if you're interested in the film, um, it's interesting to see the 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 differences stay they have um, I guess and you're right you know if you're an Andy Lau film, uh, Andy Lau fan of course you're going to see it um, and you know again he's very Andy Lau so you're going to love it but um, even then I would say again I would say watching well, on TV with commercials so it doesn't really drag as much um, same for anyone who's interested in the film and that's really the most I'll let it I'll go maybe video on demand um, but don't bother trying to watch it in the theater hmm. yeah.
1: Kicks, on a dream. It... all right we don't have any west screen films unfortunately uh we did have a plan like two episodes ago to do the green hornet uh, didn't get a chance to get out and see it was planning to do it for this episode and last weekend there i am on the computer saying hmm I think I need to watch the Green Hornet, Uh, you know, and I go and I look at the movie times and there's like one show at like 930 at night and it's only playing in 3d there, you know, there's like only one cinema that has a 2d version and it's like way out somewhere I'm not going to go. And so I said, it looks like I'm not going to see Green Hornet. Um, (laughs) And so we do apologize. We had planned to talk about it, but uh, we'll just have to save that for another day. Um but instead I thought what I would do is uh, take a few moments to talk about some blue uh, a blu-ray because the guys were on the site were kind of talking initially about um the Stephen Chow movies uh a Chinese odyssey parts 1 and 2 and there was question um from you know one of the listeners who was saying you know is you know is the the set worth it um and this sort of led us to what we were talking about last week when we were talking about, you know, just good entry points for Stephen Chow films and whatnot. And I had been intending to get some of this. I'm trying to start of, you know, get some of the more classic films that are out on Blu-ray and add them to my collection now. Slowly but surely. Prices are still pretty pricey. And I decided I'd break down and go ahead and get this set because I hadn't seen them for a while. And I thought I'd talk a little bit about it. So <clears throat> this is the uh, Mega Star Two Disc uh, Chinese Odyssey set Blu-ray. Uh, comes in a nice little uh, dual disc package. You, you pull it out, and it's got you know two sleeves that fold open. Um, but once you open it, what you see is the uh, the plastic inserts are the kind that are just kind of stuck to the cardboard. Um, and they, they're those kinds where if it gets a little bit warm, the glue will melt and they'll, they'll just come right off. Um, so in terms of the, the cheap level here, um, the, the quality of the packaging, I could could have been a bit better. Um, so I'm a little bit disappointed that the, the discs themselves, um, played well, but the quality, um, I'd say you know not not all that great um these are in supposedly 1080p <coughs> excuse me um with a um, uh where's or 1.85 uh, ratio uh full HD but they they don't look all that great um the the, the, the you know the transfers and a, a few of the a few of the scenes and a few of the shots uh, do well, but a lot of it looks washed out um still grainy in places um and this is just due to the way the film was shot in in some ways the the I've always felt the first film part one um there's not a whole lot to look at and see there um it you know it's it's basically these two sets you know one one being in inside a cave and the other being in, in the desert. The second one gets a little bit more interesting. They've got some more panoramic shots, um, some more scenery that I think uh, looks a bit nicer uh, on the (coughs) Blu-rays. Excuse me. Um, Special features. There's a director's interview uh, and a trailer, and that's basically it. The director's interview does have subtitles, so that's a plus. Um, The story, if you're not familiar with it it's um it it's basically a, a play on several episodes of that happen in the journey to the west the journey to the west is a, is like a very massive book series um i think i think it's uh i think it's three books or is it two i have to go back and look in my library um depending on how you get it they they sometimes they'll break it up into different volumes but it's really long but a lot of it is basically a lot of repetition. It's, um, you know, one chapter is monkey going with, you know, his two companions and uh, the monk who's been tasked to go to the West to get the scriptures and they go to one mountain and there's this kind of demon and the demon wants to eat, everybody wants to eat the monk because they all say he's gonna, if you eat his flesh, you'll have immortality and and superpowers basically. And so that's the thing, monkeys tasked with protecting the monk um, for this segment. um, Havoc in Heaven is the whole story of sort of the origin of the Monkey King before he gets tasked with protecting um, the monk and going to the West. And I always enjoy that story a little bit more because in this point, it's basically going to the mountain, going to the town, going to the mountain, going to the town, and at every stop somebody's trying to get the monk and the monkey king has to sort of come in and save the day and there's some kind of temptation um, that serves as sort of a moral justification in the story (coughs) so basically they take a a couple of the the more famous creatures uh, and enemies and they compact them into this story Um, then you've got stephen chow uh, who's playing the monkey king and basically he makes the goddess Gunyam angry and because of something he does. He's very cocky, as the Monkey King's prone to be. So she punishes him by um, casting him 500 years into the future and having him reincarnated as a human being. And he takes the name Joker and he starts to encounter uh, these two uh, demon women, uh, one being the white bone, white, white bone ghost, I think, and the other being the spider woman, um, which are variations of the demons of the classic story. Uh, here he has, you know, affections for one of them, uh, played by Karen Mock, and that basically sets up the first story. The second story then is, um, he has the Pandor, what they call the Pandora's box, which looks like this kind of strange, um, you know, movie clapper. Uh, that when it shines in the moonlight you can travel in time and this was basically the same device that if you saw the more recent um, just another Pandora's box from last year um, the same device being used and they're they're, they make a lot of jokes and references back to this movie Um, so in the second movie he ends up going backward 500 years in time through an accident of the box and in this this time he meets a Athena Chu's character, and so he's got, there's a love triangle going on, but uh, he's also competing with the Bull King and a Princess Iron Fan, the Bull King's wife. Um, so there's a lot of craziness, and it's borrowing bits and pieces from uh, stories that a lot of people in China, I would gather, have seen in other movies or other TV dramas, as there's been quite a lot about the Monkey King. So as a film, it's kind of hard to get into. I remember... The first time I saw it, I didn't really like it, and I think I mentioned this before, because I had not read Journey to the West at that time. I I only knew a little bit about the Monkey King as a character. I didn't, you know, I've seen the Stephen Chow films that had come before, but there was still a lot of context I was missing. I wasn't familiar with a lot of these other characters. Now, with a lot more context behind me, um, I really appreciate the film and I like the film a lot more. Um, again, I think I mentioned I'd really I really want to see somebody do a more serious take, uh, and I think we're getting one uh, with uh, Donnie Yen and Chow Yun Fat and those guys. Um, but I don't, did you see the picture they put put out for Chow Yun Fat, Kevin?
2: Oh yeah, the the really overdone <laughs> big. He yeah. is the the heavenly king. Yeah, I but think. it looks like it looks
1: like a really badly designed video game for like one of these I'm you know Chinese MMO games or something. It's just like mm. really over the top. I. I hope it's got a better production design in the end than that but you yeah, we'll um, be in 3D. I I am looking forward to that to, to a more serious take but I'd say um if you have if you already have the DVDs um there's not a lot that the Blu-rays offer. Yeah. Uh, again because of the way it was filmed um you know even even watching in the cinema I remember that some of the scenes just were not shot very very well. Again, this is a movie that's more about the language and a lot of the dialogue and, and the gag humor that's going on more than pretty visuals. So I'd say it is kind of a pricey investment. Um, if you're a Stephen Chow completionist and you have to have everything that's coming out on Blu-ray, you know, you're probably going to get it anyway. But if you've already got it, you might just want to wait. Um, I'd really love to see somebody come along and get these away from you know, some of the current handlers and you know do some remasters of them and go back and put in some new interviews with people and um some really good dvd features you know one of the things that 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 they could do i think would be to have connections you know talk about the contextual connections that exist between these films and between last last year's just another pandora's box um and other films as well because you know they could do a lot of that in Blu-ray features as hyperlinks and as, you know, reference points and things like that. Uh, a little sort of uh, mini Chinese Odyssey um, which would be something that'd be great. But of course, we've talked about this before, that's time consuming and it costs money to produce and nobody's really interested in doing that for Hong Kong films right now. So, um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's what I would say. Um, it's a bit of a pricey investment. If you don't have them and you're already getting Blu-rays, um, and you you know you're ready for more Stephen Chow, I'd say go for it. But if you've already got these on DVD, um, there's not a lot there uh, to be attractive for you, so you might just wait.
2: A uh, little context: um, this Blu-ray set came out in 2008, I think. Uh, that's actually just only one year after, literally the first. Hong Kong Blu-rays came onto the market So it was a relatively young format And I think um, Media Asia was was um, eager to get their older catalog titles out And this, of course, um, they already remastered this one for its DVD So it kind of makes sense for one of this to be the one of the first catalog releases And like I think we've already agreed over many episodes That Hong Kong companies just... They don't either receive enough money or they're not getting enough sales from the old DVD remastered versions to justify um, a true, you know, Criterion-style remaster. And also, like you said, the print, the the origin, um, the original print just wasn't that well shot. It was one of the first, I guess, bigger... Bigger Hong Kong films to be shot in China. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't, they were working with uh, inferior equipment or inferior print, yeah. inferior film, things like that. Um, well, much
1: of the film was shot out in uh in, Sion, in yeah, Xi'an, in, Shan, in Western China. And actually, when I visited uh, Shan Film Studios uh, that way, this was like way back in 2002, um, you know, they had a couple promo posters and things there. And I was talking with, um, you know, one of the people there and they did not have nice things to say about the film. <laughs> um, they said basically, you know, because it was a partnership deal at the time with the studio and, but it was very much a Hong Kong film and they felt that, in and, and I'm saying this in, in somewhat nice terms, they felt it was cultural poo. <laughs> um, were, were, you know, kind of the words they used, but a little bit stronger. Um, so, yeah, I would, I, I mean, I could see that. You know, especially some of the shots you see, they're like way out in the middle of the desert for some of these shots. And I'm sure some of the equipment was not faring well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they, I'm sure they had problems with production. And you can, you can actually see a difference, again, in parts of the first film and parts of the second film. Uh, where, where, you know, I, like I said, I think uh, the second film holds up a little bit better. They've got some better cinematography and things in there. Um, but yeah, it, it, it doesn't make the transition to Blu- Blu-ray nicely. All right, Kevin, you have any other upcoming video news or stuff you want to talk about?
2: Yeah, um, as I was saying, the criterion treatment, uh, there are two... Uh, Asian films that are coming uh, on the Criterion Collection. Um, the first one is uh, Edward Yang's EE. This is a final feature film uh, made in 2000, which is why I managed to sneak it in on my um, 2000 to 2009 best of the decade list. I've made, I made I called it the best film. Uh, it it's a kind of minimalist drama, I guess, about this uh, family in Taipei and uh, the lives of each member. Um, and the and, uh, little paths they take in their daily lives. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful film. I have the Criterion DVD that was released a couple of years ago, but now it's uh, making a transition to Blu-ray. Um, Blu-ray.com has reviewed it. Um, the images look great. Um, even though Edward Yang sadly isn't here anymore to um, supervise the transfer, uh, the film apparently got, got a pretty significant uh, visual upgrade um, from the DVD print. Uh, And that was already criterion, so imagine how great it would even look if it's a real improvement on Blu-ray. The sound uh, in 2.0, not many new features. Uh, The the features from the old DVD uh, is carried over to Blu-ray. I have ordered a copy of this, so I may report back later on and talk about uh, how much better it looks uh, firsthand. But that is definitely one of the older, I guess, more of the new Taiwanese films to look out for, Yi Yi, Edward Yang. The other Criterion film, is, I think it's already out, it's um, Hirokazu Koreeda's Um Still Walking. This is, I believe, his most, no, this his second most recent film. This is before he did Doll" last year. Um, it's kind of his tribute to both his own family and to the films of uh, Ozu. Uh, it's a f- very subtle family drama about um, a Japanese family gathering in the countryside home uh, to commemorate the death of um, the older son. Um, So the whole film takes place over the course of a day, and a lot of um, these family um, conflicts come out, and it's a very quiet film, but it's also um, surprisingly comedic, and um, it's also surprisingly engaging. Um, just watching all these actors, these great Japanese actors, were um, uh, go at each other, but very, very quietly, very subtly. Um, I, and I think it's one of the best family dramas to come off Japan uh, in recent years. It's a very, very worthy tribute to Ozu. Um, so, that film, this is the first time it's coming on Blu ray, and Criterion has picked it up. Um, I've seen the Japanese Blu ray, well, the Japanese DVD, I mean, when it first came out a few years ago, and it's a little soft. Um, it's not really a film that begs for a Blu-ray treatment, but uh, again, I seen I read the Blu-ray.com uh, review, so I've seen some stills, and again, the film looks great. Um, again, not a very flashy treatment of the film. Uh, some some features, uh, English subtitled, uh, some making up and things like that. Um, and, you know, any Asian films that get the Criterion Collection treatment, I think it's a Asian film worth checking out. So, These are two you should look out for. Uh, Sadly, they're both region A. uh, So if you don't have a region A or an all-region Blu-ray player, um, uh, then look for other regions. But both are um, Blu-rays that I'm definitely looking out for. I already ordered them, uh, and I'm looking forward to them.
0: All
1: right. I think that's going to wrap things up for this week's episode. Um, before we go, a couple comments to talk about from last time. Uh, Matt S. wrote in. He said um, that it was good timing on the interview that we had with Rufus and about the Korean uh, cinema blogathon. He said there are at least forty more Korean language films available for streaming over on Netflix. So I guess some Americans are watching. So I I had no idea there were that many uh, uh, Korean films you know, available for streaming on Netflix. That's pretty good news. Um, And he says, he goes on to talk about Valentine's Day, because we we mentioned Valentine's Day was last week. He said, the good thing about being single on Valentine's Day is you get to pick out your own gift. I ordered a bunch of B-movies courtesy of Yes Asia's $7.99 DVD sale. Um, How can a box of chocolates possibly compare to The Blue Jean Monster or I Love You Maria?
2: As uh, East Green, West Green's official, yes, Asia representative, I thank you for your business, and uh, I hope we see you again. Yes. (laughs) Every Valentine's Day. Uh, Yes, every Valentine's Day and all all major holidays. Yeah. Perfect gift.
1: And so, Kevin, I expect for next Valentine's Day that uh, you follow Matt's example and you give uh, Allison a copy of The Blue Jean Monster and I Love Maria. Because it's better than chocolate, right?
2: (laughs) Maybe I'll give her uh, a copy of Dr. Lamb or The Unto Story.
1: Yeah or what women want <laughs> because the film knows it all yeah so thanks for your comments um we love to hear from you guys and uh you know if you'd like to find out what we're doing or be find out how to contact us you can do so over at the website that's www.concast.com. um or you can leave us some feedback over on itunes we love to hear from you there um or twitter yeah, we've got this whole Twitter thing that we're always doing. Uh, I, I'm still wasting way too much time on Twitter than I probably should be. Um, but you can follow me over at twitter.com slash foxlore, and Kevin is the golden rock, that's one word. Um, or if you'd like to contact us directly, you can email the show at eastscreen at gmail.com. And you can also, if you like, send along an audio file with a question or a comment, and we can play here on the show. Um... Final thoughts, mr ma
2: um no, it's getting warmer. um, I don't know what women want, and uh see you next week, yeah, and speaking
1: <laughs> of next week, we've got both Natalie Portman films. It's gonna be
2: portmania ha <laughs> <laughs> yeah sorry i I try to I try to match you there yes, uh yes, we have the <laughs> natalie portman films, uh also uh a film that you're very, very excited about paul uh space battleship Yamato,
1: yes. My childhood is about to be relived. And the good news that's currently circulating is that the rumor is that a couple theaters, or at least one theater, is reported to have English subtitles. So I'm super excited. I don't have to bring my Japanese dictionary. Um, so yeah, that's all for next time on our next episode, episode 57. Um... Again, thank you to our guest, Scott Johnson, for coming along and talking with us in the brief interview segment. We were glad to have him here. So until next time, as always, we will wish you... What do we wish him, Kevin?
2: Uh, Good good night and good luck. No, no. I I think it's... uh, uh,
1: Good night, John boy? No. uh, As always, we will wish you good viewing
2: and we'll see you next time. Thank you, uh, Scott, and um, see you next time, everybody.